This New America NYC event took place on Friday, February 12, 2016, and is titled Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way America Works, and features author Jay Newton-Small, Alex Wagner, Bernadette Meehan, and Caroline Motoresi-Tarani. Thank you all of you very much for, for joining us today. I'm really thrilled to be doing this because uh, I interviewed Jay about her book and I read her book and I can tell you I loved her book. Um, because unlike so many books I think about um, women's parity, um, this one actually I, I left with a, a taste of positivity in my mouth. Uh, and I think so often when we're reading books about women and, and progress, uh, it always seems that the glass is very much uh, half empty. And this, you really get the sense that it is half full. Uh, not quite 50 though, and we'll get to that in a second. But first of all, I want to introduce the rest of our fantastic panel. You really need no introduction, but uh, we have Bernadette Mian, who is the Dean and Virginia Rusk Fellow at the Institute for the Study of Diplomacy at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. And uh, you may know her, of course, as a former spokesperson of the White House National Security Council. Uh, and we also have Alex Wagner, who is a host and analyst at MSNBC. So ladies, thank you very much for being here too and providing your analysis and insight. Uh, and Jay, I guess I think we'll start with you because your book, as I say, it really reframes our idea of parity. And you talk about this idea of critical mass, which isn't 50%. Uh, it's something very different. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, th first of all, thank you, Tyler Bug and New America, so much for having me here tonight. And I'm really excited to be with such an esteemed panel of, of uh, friends and ladies. Um, but uh, so I got the idea for the book originally I, I write for Time Magazine, and I wrote a story uh, about two and a half years ago during the government shutdown uh, about the women of the Senate coming together to restart the negotiations to reopen the government when none of the men would talk to each other. Um, and I had a lot of interest in writing a book out of that, but the women of the Senate were all writing their own books and didn't need one from me. But what interested me most about that episode was that it was the first time that the Senate was 20% women. And they ended up having a huge impact uh, on that session. So the 113th session was one of the most unproductive in history, considering there was a government shutdown and the nuclear option went off and everything else like that. But what legislation passed that session, 75% of it was actually authored by women. Um, so they ended up having an enormous impact. And so um, I, after writing that story, I had friends who sort of had read it and kind of started saying to me, you know, there's this, um, there's other examples of, of women kind of reaching critical mass. And so I have a friend in the Navy who talked about how on Navy ships, they have 25% women. And I have a friend in, who worked for um, a corporate board um, sort of group. And they, she said, there's a, there's a group called the 30% Club, which uh, looks to get, you know, 30% women on all corporate boards. Um, and so I started to really, that interested me, like, you know, what's the deal? Like, how come there's this thing called critical mass? And so I, um, I started looking into it. And it, so critical mass is actually a scientific term. It comes from the, uh, the idea of, like, let's say, a nuclear reaction. It's the point of no return. It's the point at which you can't stop the reaction and everything goes Boom, um, and so um, in a good way. Boom in a good way in this case. So sociologically speaking, what critical mass means is that somewhere between twenty and thirty percent, whether it's a corporate board or a legislature, a navy ship or an appellate court, and women really begin to change the culture of a society. They begin to really change the institution and the way things are done. And so my book looks at all the pocket.
pockets and where we're reaching this right now, uh, whether, and, and actually a lot of it is in government. So the three branches of government are reaching critical mass at, right now at about the same time. 20% of Congress, uh, about 30% of the administration between high level civil service employees and government and political appointees, um, and about 35% of the federal bench. So. You see these areas where women are really beginning to change the way we work. Um, and then, so my book looks at that, and then it also looks at the pockets where we're really far away <laughs> and yeah. why it's important to get there. And we're going to get to some of those in a second. I think one of the interesting things as well is the book is a kind of a play on words, the, the pejorative broad. Uh, tell us, why did you choose that as a title? So um, the word broad actually came from the late 1800s. It was a very Dickensian word. And it actually comes from the description of women. So women bear children. They have broad hips. And they were called broads. And so it was, but it was a pejorative term. And it was so offensive to women that by the 1960s, they actually uh, boycott, they actually pr um, uh, protested or petitioned the uh, Olympic Committee to change the name of the broad jump to the long jump because they found it so disturbing, right, that you would call it the broad jump. Um, and I think that it's time to sort of take that word back because you know what? We do have broad hips, we do bear children, and we should be celebrated for that. <laughs> and like, and that, so we should sort of reclaim it and own it. And that's why I chose the title. I love the title. I think we, we're all here agreeing with you. Uh, so, you know, Bernadette, I guess I want to talk a little bit about uh, how you have maybe seen this, this notion of critical mass that Jay is just talking about uh, in, in your own experience uh, in politics. Sure. Uh, so I will say a couple of things. I am a, I'm a foreign service officer, a career foreign service officer, so I belong to the Department of State. Uh, as Caroline said, I spent three years at the White House National Security Council serving as the spokesperson. Uh, and what I think is really interesting, I, you know, you could have a whole conversation about how the National Security Council is a little bit of a, a misunderstood or unknown institution, uh, but it's essentially the president's uh, foreign policy and national security advisory uh, arm of the government, uh, interacting with all of the other agencies. And what's really interesting about it is, under my tenure there, we had a female national security advisor, Susan Rice. We have a deputy national security advisor of Real Haynes, also a woman. We have an NSC chief of staff, also a woman, Susie George. We have the president's uh, assistant for homeland security and counterterrorism, also a woman, Lisa Monaco. We had a female spokesperson. Uh, and when you look at the different groups within the National Security Council led by women, they include the leader of the counterterrorism bureau, the leader of the legislative affairs Bureau, the leader of our Russia Policy Bureau, and the leader of one of our Middle East bureaus. So in an area like national security, where generally people tend to think this is sort of a man's world and, you know, what is a woman really doing in that hardcore space, um, we have found a shift under this president where the, the broad majority uh, of the decision makers inside of the national security space of the White House uh, are females. Um, so I think, you know, there is a critical mass there. I think it's shifted some of that culture, uh, not only how the women treat each other, but how the, the, the men view the women in that space, which I think has been, um, you know, a, a really sort of popular and, and positive movement. Well, so how, the men, how did the men treat you in that space? I'm curious. So it's interesting because in reading in reading Jay's book, there is the chapter on the on the West Wing, which I thought was really interesting. Um, I also thought it was interesting that I couldn't relate my experience to a lot of what I was reading in that, um, which I think is positive and and probably can be taken into account for a few ways. Number one, I think for women, you know, you always have to acknowledge that for every generation, and in this case, it's not necessarily a generational gap, um, but even every year there is incremental progress, you know, and there is continually a struggle to reach parity. 
uh, and to have women that are uh, in places where there's more opportunity and they have more decision-making power and more influence. So, you know, for Anita Dunn and Alistair Master Monaco and some of these others who came before me, uh, there was a little bit of a, a sort of a rougher edge. And I think that has shifted over time, which I think is, is a really positive thing. Uh, and so I think, you know, these men around the table now are very used to seeing women, uh, not only backbenching, but sitting at the table in the White House Situation Room or coming in, uh, you know, in, in the Oval Office and saying, we have a national security crisis and we are part of the team that is going to advise you uh, on how you respond to that. I think that's interesting as well, because, you know, we've all heard that expression, if you can see it, you can be it, which I think applies very much to, to women. Uh, but I think that, that one thing that never is talked about is the fact that it's very important for men to see women in those positions as well, because then they become, of course, more used to uh, us uh, making decisions and, and being part of that process. Uh, Alex, I mean, talk to us a little bit about how this reflects in the in the political media space as well, um, because you are somebody who, I think in the media landscape, uh, we very often see uh, more women, more and more women coming up through the ranks to be able to cover politics. How have you seen a critical mass in your own industry and your own career? Well, there was a piece on L.com, I think it was yesterday, that basically showed the faces of MSNBC and NBC's campaign coverage. It's all women. And it's Andrea Mitchell and Kristen Welker, but it's also Hallie Jackson and Katie Turr and Casey Hunt. I mean, it's generationally spread across one gender, which is totally awesome. The notion of the boys on the bus is obviously kind of an outmoded concept. Um, but I think if you're talking about political media, you see female faces on TV, but you also are seeing more women behind the scenes. And as anyone will tell you who is on TV, the decisions that are probably the most impactful are the ones that are made off camera, the executive producers, the senior producers, the people that are helping determine the outlay of the show, the stories that we cover, the ways in which they're covered, the scripts that we television heads read. Um, and there are women, I mean, at MSNBC, there are you know, the people that are running daytime coverage, the people that are running a lot of primetime coverage are women. Um, and their names are not bandied about as much. Um, but NBC is run by Deborah Turness. She's the president. Uh, Yvette Miley, Rashida Jones, Izzy Povich are big players behind the scenes. And I think that really matters because it's great having a woman on TV, but it's really important to have a woman behind the scenes saying, we got to cover this. So, I mean, that's been very heartening. And I think that, let's talk about that, Jay, in, in the research you've done for your book as well. So, you know, as Alex was just saying, Deborah Turnus being at the head, uh, then when you're looking at something like a Fortune 500 company, for example, we know that only about between 20 and 24, depending on which article you read and whichever year it is, but it is less than 25 uh, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are women. Um, when it comes to critical mass, does it matter where that 30% lies within a company or within an organization? Absolutely. So um, the, the critical mass and the reason why it's between 20 and 30 percent is because um, when you have critical actors, you need less. Right. So in the, in the case of, for example, Nancy Pelosi, I have a chapter looking at her in the House, um, just having her as speaker of the House, she actually increased female representation in the Democratic caucus of the House from about 19.5 percent to 36 percent. And so she went out and recruited a ton of women and got them in there and and supported them. Um, and so when you have a critical actor like a CEO, who's going to nurture women's careers, bring them up, um, or a speaker or a president, um, that is really, really important. 
But conversely, it is the hardest glass ceiling to break, right? So um, there's a reason why less than 5% of Fortune 1000 CEOs are women. There's a reason why we've never had a female president or female nominee of a major party. We've never had um, only 12% of governors are women, only 18% of the top 100 mayors are women. And that's because it's a different, it's perceived as a different skill set, right? So women are perceived as very collaborative and they look for win-win scenarios. And therefore in legislatures, um, there's a comfort in electing them. Um, but when you're looking for a woman like to be a commander in chief, uh, a command decision maker, uh, playing in zero sum games, um, women are considered weaker in that. And so it's a lot harder to break that glass ceiling because there's a toughness test there that men do not face. And I think you're seeing that on the campaign trail right now with Hillary, um, you know, and she is facing this you know, a, a kind of a, 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 we can talk about this a little more later, but like this kind of box of, you know, having to prove that she's tough enough and having to prove that she's experienced enough and still be likable, which I think is um, a, a very tough needle to thread for women. What's the word now? As you brought it, as you brought it up. And I think that, you know, I think it's fascinating because obviously we just, uh, the d Democratic debate last night, of course, and then New Hampshire, um, where she suffered that double digit defeat uh, to Bernie Sanders. And when you look at the numbers, um, I mean, it really is quite staggering. You have to, I guess, take into account the, the broader picture about the fact that she has, of course, run before. Uh, she's a familiar face. And whilst Bernie Sanders has been around for a while, uh, he seems new and he seems fresh. Uh, but Bernadette, how are you seeing Hillary and this so-called problem with women that she's facing? How do you interpret it? So I uh, was Secretary Clinton's special assistant for two years at the State Department, so I know her quite well. Uh, and it's interesting because when I was there, you know, when I would talk to family and friends or you meet strangers who know that you have this relationship with someone, I would always get asked sort of the same types of questions. Um, is she really that smart or is she just sort of reciting talking points? And, uh, you know, you'd have to sort of go into an explanation there. Uh, she definitely is not someone who memorizes a 25-second uh, soundbite and repeats it. I can say that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Those who watch the debates will, will get that reference. Um, I would constantly, Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio. Uh, I would constantly be asked uh, about her fashion choices. Why does she always wear pantsuits and she wears these scrunchies and what is she doing with her hair? I mean, these are questions that people would ask me. Uh, and then I would always get asked, the third question I would always get asked was some, some form of, um, is she personable? Is she nice? You know, what is it like to work for her? And I would think... Nobody ever asked me about Deputy Secretary of State Bill Burns' hair or what tie he's wearing that day or if he tells good jokes or if he's really nice. Um, but these were always questions that I would get about her. Uh, people would rarely ask me questions about you know, where she stands on an issue or what the policy or the substance of her positions was. Um, so I think you know, that, that is uh, you know, a cultural thing that I think we'll need to shift over time, but I think it just goes to show that she has this extra barrier as a woman that a Bernie Sanders or a Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, none of these others really have to deal with. I mean, Alex, it comes down to likability, right? People are always like, well, I just don't know if I like her. And there are all these think pieces written about whether or not uh, you know, she's, she's likable and, 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 and electable based on that. Um, but, you know, when, when you look at New Hampshire, it's a very small, obviously, cross-section of the whole country. Uh, but with women under 30, 82% voted for Bernie Sanders. So what do you make of that? I mean, you know, is she just not likable to young women or is it much more deep than that? So I was on Real Time with Bill Maher the night that Gloria Steinem said that young women are... Um, I was not on stage, I'll have everyone know that. Um, but I was in the back waiting to go on. And when she said that young women are for Bernie Sanders because that's where the boys are. And that was not, 
Well, I think that, that that is not correct, first of all. But I think, you know, there was context around that. And one of the things Steinem was trying to point out was that women get more radical as they get older because they sort of see the injustices for what they are in a more concrete way, whether it's earning potential or whether it's sexism, whatever it is. But women become sort of more... Um, the world is is that much with them as they get older. And and there may be some truth to that. I also think to your point, Bernadette, you know, the women, and this is probably true across genders, those who come before us, we often don't know, we, we, we can't know or internalize the struggles they have gone through. And I think part of the promises of, of America is, you know, every day is a new day. And we're not particularly good at looking at troubled histories and kind of atoning for the sins of our, or the difficulties of our forefathers or foremothers. Um, and when it comes down to women, I think that's especially true, or, or a female candidate, as Hillary Clinton proposes herself to be, um, she is actually a female candidate. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Right here Uh, from Alex Wagner. I don't know what she's about to say. Here's a no. uh, No, obviously she's a female candidate, but the the sort of history making nature of her candidacy being a major selling point is it apparently not does not hold true for younger women, right? They're not that interested in that. And I think part of that is, I mean, almost a testament to, to progress, right? Like Young women expect a certain currency in in society. They expect more of a of a level playing ground, and and they should, right? Like, why should they go in thinking that the the, the one side is tilted? Um, however, women who are older and remember the civil rights era and women's lib, I think you know have those scars and have that scar tissue, and and the prospect of having a woman in the Oval Office is deeply meaningful in a way that it isn't necessarily for younger women. And I think that's right, Jay. Yeah, I, I'd love to talk talk to me a little bit more about that dichotomy of progress that Hillary kind of finds herself in. Yeah, I just want to follow up on Alex's remarks. I was in I was in New Hampshire. I actually just got to New York this morning from New England, and um, I was there from... The, I flew actually on the Hillary plane uh, the night of the Iowa to New Hampshire, and I was there the whole time with her. And I think the best person who really encapsulated the problem that Hillary faces with young women voters was a woman, a young woman voter, who I spoke with at a Hillary event. And she was like, and I asked her, well, you know, she's like, I'm, I've, she'd been to, you know, uh, sorry, it was at a Bernie event. So she'd been to Hillary events and she'd been to Bernie events and she decided she wanted to vote for, for Bernie. And she was 22. And I was like, well, why are you voting for Bernie? And she was like, well, if you think of going to a political event as like a first date and you go to a Bernie event and he like screams at you for 40 minutes and you're like, yeah, right on, scream at me more, you know, and you're like really excited by it and you're like swept off your feet and you want revolution and you think it's awesome, right? And like, you're like, this is great. I'm going to change the world. And you leave really pumped up. Um, And then she's like, and then you go to a Hillary event and she's like, and it's like going on a first date with like an actuary and she talks about, you know, like, like, you know, your mortgage payments down the road and saving for retirement and like, and she's like, and it's all the things I know I should care about. And I can hear my mom in my head saying I should care about them, but like, I really don't care about them and they're really boring. And like, I want to go with Bernie. Um, No offense to any actresses in the audience, by the way. I'm sure you're lovely people. Um, so I, I think the, the, the box that she's in is really tough on, on sort of three fronts. And one of them is that Bernie is 
passionate and he shows his passion by screaming. And Hillary, when she gets passionate and she tries to scream because she's a woman, it comes off as sounding shrill. And you get Bob Woodward going on Morning Joe talking about how she's screaming at him, right? And I don't know whether it's like because we're programmed to like freak out when we hear our mom scream at us and like it's something, you know, kind of like, you know, disciplinarian or whatever, but we really, people react badly to that. So, you know, she was trying to scream to tell, you know, to, to sort of to, to show her passion coming from Iowa and it was it was horrible it just didn't work and so the campaign shifted gear and they solved it by making her really hushed and I don't know if this works either because then she was like I really care so much about this you know and like oh it means the world to me and like you know and you're like I don't know if that works either so it's hard for her to show passion one as a woman right how do you do that as a woman and then two Bernie's like full of these pie in the sky dreams, right? Like, and if Hillary produced a $15 trillion healthcare plan, we would be like, are you on crack, Hillary Clinton? That's not happening, right? But it, like Bernie produces it and then we're like, oh yeah, $15 trillion. Okay, Bernie, you know, like, and so how do you as Hillary create dreams, right? Like how do you create this, like, you know, these soaring dreams? So that's her second problem. And I think her third problem is almost this like parental problem, right? Like Bernie's like the guy, like the husband who's like, I want to go buy the jet ski. And like Hillary's like the wife who's like, no, 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 we need to save for college. <laughs> you know, like, and like, that's not going to happen. We can't afford the jet ski. And so it's, it's, she's really boxed into this kind of stereotype of a woman that we see and her trying to break out of that and actually have a message that resonates, that resonates, that inspires, I think is really hard for her. And she's, you know, she's boxed in by that stereotype, not only by uh, the, the three points you mentioned, but also by her friends a little bit, right? I mean, we saw Madeleine Albright, she made that comment. And she's made this comment, as Hillary pointed out many times before, that there is a special place in hell uh, for women who don't help each other. Uh, now, rather than galvanizing young female voters, it, it seemed to alienate them. Bernadette, uh, how did you interpret that situation? So, I mean, I think this goes back to what, what Alex and I were both touching on, that there is, you know, a generational experience difference between women of, you know, Secretary Albright's generation, Gloria Steinem, who is this feminist icon and did so much to advance the opportunities that everyone on this stage, every woman in this room uh, is able to benefit from. So it's a different experience. Uh, I think, you know, we as women of our generation, I think even though there's been tremendous progress, and as I said, I feel like I have benefited in ways even that my predecessors in the West Wing didn't have an opportunity to benefit from, um, we cannot forget or mistake that for sort of a good place to settle, right? Even though there's been progress uh, and things are much better, that doesn't mean that the world is, is sort of the way that it should be. Um, so I think it was sort of more of a generational thing than it was sort of a male or, or female type of issue. I think to me, the other thing that's really complicated for female candidates for office, especially in, in a commander in chief role where you have to balance national security, homeland security, we're dealing with terrorist threats, it's sort of an age of fear, a climate of fear, is this idea that as a woman, you have to be appealing to so many different dimensions, right? You need to show that you are strong and that you are tough and that you can respond well to a threat from Vladimir Putin or a threat from ISIL on the terrorist front. But then you also need to be able to show people 
that you have empathy and you understand what it's like to be a mother and raise a family and need to have a work-life balance in a way that I simply don't think that male candidates have to appeal across the board. Um, no, nobody's looking at Bernie Sanders and saying, well, wow, you know, he isn't smiling enough or his hair doesn't look good or why isn't he talking about, you know, maternity leave for women and all this type of stuff. But Hillary Clinton is expected to be able to address all those facets of her personality. Um, and I just don't think it's the same for a male candidate. So. I would also say this is a, an election, a, a remarkable election insofar as people are at, across the board proposing outlandish, impossible maybe like democracy ending proposals and nobody is holding them to account, right? And here's Hillary Clinton trying to sort of unpack Bernie Sanders policies. And it's like, hey, hey, lady, you didn't get the memo. Like this is the thing where we just talk and we don't worry about the consequences. I mean, that literally, I mean, like, if you think about what's being said in the, and I know I work for MSNBC, but truly, I mean, how does the Mexico pay for the wall again? I mean, I, I don't, I mean, obviously. They just do, Alex. Right, they they, just they're just do. going to, and it's going to be beautiful, and that's the Republican frontrunner. So I think that the season of that is, is further complicating her message. The other thing I would say is, and I think that this is, I mean, I, I can't believe I'm going to bring this up, but I, I do think it has something to do with Hillary, there is a certain group of women and men who are maybe not, you know, young Sanders supporters and not of Steinem's and, and Madeleine Albright's generation, but people who remember the Clinton era and remember, I can't believe I'm saying it again, Lewinsky, and, and then the email scandals layered on top of this, it's this sense of like, being beleaguered about the Clintons and mistrust, and it sort of doesn't matter if Bernie Sanders' policies have anything to do with reality, and it also has nothing to do with whether or not it matters if a woman's in the White House. It's just like, it can't be the Clintons. And I feel like he becomes their default for that reason, that's in, sort of independent of gender, um, which is a particularly Clintonian dynamic. I mean, Jay, I guess, is there any way then for her to get past that? Because people have been trying to, I mean, how many iterations that this campaign has gone through? You know, like, let's re-message, let's, re let's bring in new people, let's shake it up. Uh, I mean, you covered her as well before. And actually, it was curious in Jay's book, you're very honest and you say that you covered her uh, far more toughly than you did in terms of other candidates. Do you think that the same thing is going on here? And is she always going to get this extra level of scrutiny that Alex is talking about simply because she does have that name and she does have that past? Um, I guess there are two questions there, you know, the level of scrutiny and then how does she get past it? And I would say the level of scrutiny, you know, is partly the Clinton name, like Alex said, and it's, you know, it's partly you know, the emails and the, you know, and everything else that comes with the Clinton baggage and the fact that she's, you know, had Secret Service protection and been, you know, in the public eye for more than 20 years. Um, <clears throat> and so there's a huge history there. And to some degree, you know, uh, like all female candidates have to deal with their husband's baggage a lot more than male candidates do. So you have like Diane Feinstein, senator from California, or Barbara Boxer, another senator, senator from California. I mean, uh, even Geraldine Ferraro was their first vice presidential nominee in 1984, having to answer for their husband's business dealings. You know, and in ways that like nobody ever asks, like about Paul Ryan's wife's business dealings or John Boehner's wife's business dealings. And so there is that. But then the Clintons also ran on a on a platform of two for one in 1992. And so they kind of also put themselves out there for this. Um, and, and how does she get over it? I mean, this is something I've been sort of thinking about. And it's tough. I mean, she has to find a way to, I mean, like hectoring young female voters to vote for her and lecturing them and saying you have to do it because she's a woman is never going to work. And that's a terrible idea. And I think it puts off women voters. Um, but she, you know, in, in when I, so I, I wrote the book 
at Harvard. Uh, I was an Institute of Politics fellow and I taught, you know, um, a seminar based off of the, each of the chapters that I wrote. And the, the Hillary seminar, like, Every girl in the class was like floored at the idea that uh, women could not wear pants to work until Hillary wore pants in the White House. It was like, and everyone was like, wait, what? Women couldn't wear pants to work before 1994? Like, that's crazy. Um, and so, and I think young women just don't have a sense of how hard it was to come through so many of these struggles. And I think if she, I mean, what she needs to do is make the clarion case to them of why she is the best candidate, right? Like, not because she's a woman, but because of her experiences and she's been at the forefront of so many of these battles and then she can personally tell those stories about what it was like to wear pants and have the whole world's media come down on you what it was like to like go to China and tell these stories but tell them I mean she telegraphs them now she kind of mentions them in passing but she needs to give I think a kind of speech that really says here was my personal experience breaking these boundaries here's what I learned and here is how I would represent you differently as president because of these experiences and really sort of explain it all. And I think that's what people, especially younger women, need to hear. Yeah, Ben, Jeff, what do you think? I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, if you look back at the previous campaign, one of the pivotal moments was in New Hampshire, ironically enough, right, where she sort of had what some people said was an emotional breakthrough when she was talking about sort of the, the stresses of the campaign and so on and so forth. So I think, again, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, this moment where she did, as, as Jay was saying, have this, this sort of moment as some would say weakness, some would say honesty and sort of pure emotion. Um, but she she gets praise in some corners for that. She gets attacked for being weak in other corners. It's sort of, there's nothing that she can do that will satisfy all sides. And again, part of that is is because she's a Clinton, but part of it I really do think is is because she's a woman. So I think that Jay is right. She needs to tap into sort of the emotion uh, and, and sort of the the truth of what her experiences have been if she wants to appeal to, to younger female voters, but that can't be a forced thing. Um, but I also agree with Alex, and I think that hopefully in the end, you know, uh, when people look at platforms that the candidates have, it isn't about male or female, it's about, you know, what is a realistic choice for where this country is going? And, you know, if someone can't put a price tag on what a healthcare plan is, or wants to build a wall and can't define what that's going to be, uh, you know, people need to make decisions and not base that on gender application, but on, you know, wh where you see the, the future and the vision of this country. Yeah, I think it's very well put. Uh, well, you know, let's talk a little bit about what it means to have a female commander-in-chief, you know, if she were to get there. Um, Jay, in your book, you look a little bit about female leadership and female governance. Uh, what do women do when they lead that men don't do? Um, well, I mean, studies show, and this is obviously not unilateral, I mean, women are not all the same, right? But I mean, you can say that very generally speaking, studies show that women are much more collaborative. Women look for win-win situations where men look for zero-sum games. Women um, tend to uh, build relationships in negotiations and try to um, like look for the driving forces behind the negotiators and, and kind of work the way through the problem like that. So women tend to bluff less in negotiations. They tend to, um, you know, bluster less and it tends to be a little bit more frank, I guess you could say. And, uh, you know, Blanche Lincoln had a great descriptor of how so many of the senators um, have a PTA way of, uh, of, of legislating and they would uh, tackle a bill and they would just basically be like, okay, we're just going to split it up and you take these amendments, you take these amendments, you take these amendments, and there's like very little ego in it. Um, one of my favorite sort of data points about the Senate is there's a senator named Deb Fisher who is a Republican Tea Party from Nebraska. Um, she was eight years in the Nebraska State Senate. She chaired one of the most influential committees in that Senate. Uh, which was the insurance committee, and she never once held a press conference in the entire eight years. <laughs> and like, and so women just generally 
grandstand less. Um, and I think so, I mean, like generally speaking, I guess you could say those are some of the leadership qualities that are very different. And that reaching out, I like that point as well. Uh, I mean, Alex, how have you seen uh, female governance in your own career? Uh, I mean, I just, on, on that note, I kind of wish women would grandstand more. I mean, it's like we're in the season of grandstanding and I don't know. I mean, obviously that's not good, but I mean, it, it, it feels like women sometimes are shy about touting their own accomplishments. And I think, you know, we should know, everyone should read Jay's book. We should also know this. I mean, we should know this information that women are actually really, really fucking good at governing. Sorry. I know this is getting taped for the internet. Um, and Wait that a is, on that note though then so when did you learn that skill because I feel like you know I, I love I love when I read that you know I read Jay's book and I read books and you sort of think women need to be more okay about shouting their accomplishments like yeah we should fucking own it so but we all learn that from from someone right we all learn that at some point and there's either a moment that teaches us that or it's a person so when did that happen for well, you? Well listen I will say you know I work at a channel where Rachel Maddow is like, you know, say what you will about whether you agree with her. She works incredibly hard. She's unstinting. She is, she is, she has a capacity for information and hard work that I have never seen. That has nothing to do with gender. It is really awesome to have a woman in the building that is, you know, as, I mean, in, in a way, I mean, knowing that Rachel is going to work 10 times harder than anybody else in that building on that show drives us all forward, right? I mean, it's 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 really great to have, and I love Chris Hayes, and I love Lawrence O'Donnell, and I love Chris Matthews, but Rachel is like very much kind of like a mascot for, for MSNBC in, in a very, very good way, not in an empty way, um, because of her perseverance and her and her, her drive, really. And and that, you know, when I got to MSNBC, it's, it's awesome. It's awesome to be in a building where the person that's like the toughest, the hardest, the strongest, the one that's working 14 hour days is a woman and by the, and, and she's a woman and that's only a by the way, right? She's just that because that's who she is. So, and, and then you have Andrea Mitchell who was in the hour right before me when I was at noon or now I can't even remember all the time slot changes, but, and, and Andrea is like incredibly tenacious and it's not, and they are not lauded and looked highly upon because they're women. They just happen to be women and they're tough as hell. You know, I mean, I interviewed Nancy Pelosi and I remember asking her, I said, leader Pelosi, what did, you know, what do you have for breakfast? Such a woman question. Um, and she was like, I eat nails for breakfast. And I was like, <laughs> Yeah, you do. But of course you do. You know, and I, and I actually found one of like the most offensive things Bernie Sanders said last night was talking about courage and the passage of a single payer plan or the fact that we needed universal health care. And, we, and we, it just was about courage. And I thought, you know, you talk to Nancy Pelosi about courage and the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Like, I mean, there are these, these moments, I mean, these, there are these incredibly tough, resilient women that I've seen both inside the building in which I work and outside that have been, I mean, just game changing for me as I think about myself as a professional conducting myself in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And Jay, jump in there. Oh, I was just going to, I, 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 we're so focused on the political chapters. I did, I wanted to mention that um, there's a ton of research out there on the, on the corporate side, on the private sector side, about how women do govern differently. Women manage very, very differently than men do. And, um, and so if you look at, like, for example, um, uh, McKinsey has like a, a group of reports called Women Rule. Women Rule? Women, I think it's, um, I can't remember the name. They're women something, anyway. They're McKinsey women and you'll get it. Um, and so, uh, and, and they looked at like 
the 13 categories that like, we you know, the, of leadership, right? And they asked all their companies, like, what are the 13 categories of leadership? And um, women had four of them, men had four of them, and then there were four that were kind of, or five that were like, you know, not, not neither here nor there. But there was no sex that did it. And, and, and it was really interesting because the, the, the categories that women, um, excelled in, which was like collaboration, team building, like mentoring, all these things. Like when you ask the companies what were like was most lacked in those companies was like all the women's things. Um, it was like, and there was like sort of the case in point why you should hire women. But if you look at, there's a ton of research that shows that, you know, hiring more women, having more women on your boards makes your company 26% more um, efficient. It makes it upwards of 40% more profitable. It makes it, um, you have to restate your earnings 55% less. Like women on corporate boards, Boards, um, tend to be kind of, especially very hard-nosed. Um, they ask the tough questions. Uh, so there's a ton of research that shows that ha like when you have more women on your board, men prepare better for board meetings <laughs> um, because they feel like they're going to get shamed by their female counterpoints who know more than they do. Um, and so there's and so th there's there is a, that whole universe out there which I wanted to not neglect. Oh, I think it's very important not to neglect it. I like the idea of men quivering and having to prepare extra hard. I'm sure you all did. I'm sure you did an extra reading, men in the audience today. Um, well, you know, one of the other fascinating anecdotes that I'd love you to talk about, Jay, is, uh, is Paddy Murray and Paul Ryan. Uh, I love this approach to, uh, to sort of reaching across the aisle because I think that everybody in the audience will probably agree. It feels like we're at one of the most partisan moments uh, in our history, uh, that the right is so right and the left is so left and never the twain shall meet and, and things get very vitriolic and, and, and sort of very bile-inducing. And yet there's this wonderful anecdote where uh, the now Speaker of the House uh, and Paddy Murray, who's a Democrat, have a, a little bit of a repartee around football. So um, when Nancy, when Patty Murray became speaker, well, became sorry, excuse me, <laughs> when Patty Murray became dreams, <laughs> Jane. <laughs> Uh, when Patty Murray became chair of the budget committee and her counterpart was Paul Ryan, who's chair of the House Budget Committee, she took him to breakfast, like within a few days of them both being named. And she basically said, we're not going to talk work. I just want to figure out who you are. So they figured out that they both fished. They figured out that they both had lost or, their, or her father had gotten MS when she was very young and they'd had to go on food stamps for a while. Paul Ryan had actually found his father's dead body at the age of 16 in the house. He died of a heart attack. So they both had to have, you know, work at a very young age, put themselves through college, and they found a lot of these common building blocks, but the one major building block was football. So turns out Patty Murray and Paul Ryan are both crazy football fanatics. And Patty, Patty Murray was obviously for the Seahawks and Paul Ryan was, uh, and I'm so bad. Packers. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm so bad. Thank you. I'm so, so bad with sports. And so, um, and so whenever they had like a lull in negotiations, um, they would, she would like bring up sports and she would needle him because the, the Seahawks obviously were doing pretty well that year. The Packers were not doing that well that year. And, uh, and she would be like, so how are the Packers doing these days, huh, Paul? <laughs> and like, and, uh, um, and it ended up being their entire language for passing this bill was like, Paul was like, well, we're on the 10 yard line. Where are you? And she'd be like, I'm on the 20 yard line. And he's like, okay, well, here's my 40 yard line. What's your 50? And like the whole negotiation was this like back and forth and it really worked for them. And they produced the only two year budget deal that ended the fiscal cliffs that a deal that Boehner and Obama couldn't get a deal that, you know, um, 
Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell couldn't get and Joe Biden. Everyone had tried and failed and they, they ended up producing this two-year budget deal that was, you know, passed overwhelmingly in both chambers and it was like the only thing that like passed, you know, that the in the sort of nuclear winter because it was in the middle of the the nuclear um, the nuclear option which is a whole other sort of Senate craziness to explain but essentially the Senate stopped functioning for a while because they got into a big fight about confirmations, um, judicial confirmations and so, and the filibuster. But, um, and during that time the only thing that passed was this deal and it was, be, is a testament to their friendship and how close they are. And they still remain very close to this day. They text each other all the time. He like challenged her to do the ALS ice bucket challenge without telling her. And like, you know, she like got him a, a Super Bowl jersey, um, you know, when they, when the deal passed and like, and, the, and gave it to him, which he has hung in his house. Although his, he, he, he's very careful to say it's not in my Packers shrine. It's like elsewhere. <laughs> um, but um, so yeah, it's, it's a really, it's, and, and, and Patty always says that this is the way women do things. Like, you know, we, we get to know the people we're dealing with. And she was like, she got to know what Paul's victories were, what he needed to bring back to his own people as a victory so that he could come to the table with a deal. Um, and what she, and, and he got to know what her victories were. And then that's how they got to a deal. Can I ask a question? Because the narrative is that, you know, relationships on the Hill have, are, are at an all-time low. I mean, there there isn't the socializing that there used to be. But from this anecdote, obviously there is some socializing going on. Is it women on the Hill that are sort of the functional brokers of these relationships to, in, in your experience? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so the brief history of why this is so dysfunctional, why, why Washington to some degree is so dysfunctional is that in Newt Gingrich essentially changed all of the rules um, of the House and the salaries of the House uh, and the Senate soon followed suit in the 1990s and basically said, you know, members should not live in Washington. Members should go home as much as possible and not be polluted by inside the beltway um, by living there and, and experiencing it too much. And so um, from the time, and, and he gave them travel budgets, much larger travel budgets and much larger, and, and enabled them to go home all the time. And it actually ended up killing bipartisan, bipartisanship on the Hill. So, you know, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill used to have drinks every several nights a week after six, and Ronald Reagan called him his friend after six. Nowadays, nobody, and they were enemies during the day, but like, and nowadays, nobody, very few people do that. The members hardly know other members in the same party, let alone people on the other side of the aisle. Um, and the women, because they were a minority, had begun this tradition of dinners. Like 20 years ago, it was Barbara Mikulski from Maryland and uh, KB, uh, KB Hutchinson from Texas. And they you know, started this tradition of monthly dinners because they gathered to just sort of kvetch about what it was like being, you know, the only women in this incredibly sexist, you know, society and like all the men, you know, and, and what the things they had to go through and they, and they would share with each other, like, how do you staff up? What do you, how do you run your offices? What do you do for constituent calls? Like, and they would sort of share strategies. And to this day, Diane Feinstein, who's the dean of, you know, I guess, will soon be the dean when Barbara Mikulski retires, takes out to lunch every incoming female senator and says, here's how you do the best constituent outreach and here's my secrets to like, you know, running offices. Um, and so they became this kind of sisterhood where, um, and, and, and they literally were like the only people who know each other socially in Washington anymore because they had this sisterhood. And so nobody else ever talks to each other anymore. And so when Washington broke down in hyperpartisanship, 
that's why they pre ended up producing so much legislation is because they were the only ones actually talking to each other and they were the only ones who were actually friends. And, and they bring that also to their male relationships. And so, you know, there was 11 of the 20 committees um, were run by women in that session, 113th session. And all of the women talked about how they would insist on taking out their male counterparts to lunch. They visited their male counterparts in their home states. They got to know their families. They went to funerals like, you know, Barbara Boxer went to like James and James Inhofe's son's funeral. Um, and, and she also went to his dog's funeral. Um, and like, that's, and, that's commitment that's to a friendship. And that's that's a friendship. But I think, but I think, you know, from what we're saying here, then I mean, not only is it that it seems to be women uh, are typically in these situations more likely to want to bring other women together, but it doesn't really matter in those moments whether they are on the same side of the political aisle or not. Uh, but I want to bring in a sort of more of a broad context. So you know, the Iran uh, nuclear deal obviously happened, uh, and it was something that I'm sure you were all following pretty closely. Uh, and I think that for for the most part, John. Kerry uh, was celebrated for that and Ernie Monitz as well. But there are actually three women who really did broker this deal. Baroness Catherine Ashton, Frederica Logarini, and Helga Schmidt. And no one really knew that these were the women who were the ones staying out late round Wendy the Sherman. Wendy Sherman. Wendy and Wendy Sherman, exactly. And Wendy Sherman. So tell us a little bit about how from, from those negotiations you saw women really taking a lead and, and what women did differently to actually get us to a point where we just saw a historic Accord. Sure. So uh, the Iran deal is something near and dear to my heart. I worked on that for many, many years. Uh, and I, what's interesting about it is not only on the on the EU side, as you mentioned, that, that you had three women. Uh, we had Wendy Sherman, who was the Undersecretary of State, recently retired, uh, now up at Harvard, I believe, yeah. uh, where, I where you wrote the book. Uh, who was the lead negotiator uh, on the U.S. side after the secret channel uh, merged into the P5 plus one uh, broader international channel. We also had several women on the national security side, both at the White House and the State Department, Iran experts, uh, who worked on that deal as well. Um, I don't know that I would be able to point to specifically something that changed in that dynamic because it was women versus men. Uh, I think there were a lot of things that, that came into the dynamic of how that deal was achieved. Some of it was generational. Uh, some of it was cultural. Um, I certainly I think it was interesting that, that it was more of a, a, a gender balance in that particular negotiation more than any other that I've seen sort of under this White House on the, on the foreign policy side. Um, I think what is perhaps most telling is that I don't know that there is something that, that I could point to, if that makes sense, right? Like my experience going back again to what I said in the beginning has been more that it is common and accepted that there are women at the table. Um, I've seen this overseas as well. I've served several times in the Middle East and Latin America and some of these places that are sort of bastions of masculinity. Um, and I think people come to recognize that in the American system, there are women at the table. Uh, and this is who you're going to deal with in national security negotiations, in negotiations on any topic that you can think of. Um, and I think that's a really positive thing. Um, going back to what Jay was saying about the, the group, this sort of triggered something for me. We have in the National Security Council a group of women on, on the younger side, uh, on the earlier sta stage of our career, uh, we get together monthly to have dinners to sort of talk about what it's like to be women in the national security space coming up in Washington and how we deal with all of these issues, ranging from, you know, inter-office dynamics to international negotiations to when do you find time to date when you're in the national security space. And I actually found my fiance in the National Security Council, so uh, didn't have to go far. Thank you. 
Um, but I came from the private sector. Uh, I worked on Wall Street for seven years before I joined the government. I was at JP Morgan and at Lehman Brothers. Uh, and going back to the issue of critical mass, my experience on Wall Street was as a woman, I came in as an analyst just out of college. It was a much more isolating experience. Uh, there were not a lot of women. I started out in emerging markets and foreign exchange trading, which was a, an, an area really dominated by men. There were not a lot of women on the trading floor. Uh, and I felt like when I came into contact with other women, it was not necessarily a supportive relationship. It was somewhat adversarial. I felt that women, when there are not a critical mass of women in an organization like that, tend to see each other more as competition and don't tend to lift each other up, which I think is um, incredibly disappointing. And that's why this issue of critical mass I find to be so important. Uh, even if it isn't one necessarily like a Rachel Maddow or one woman who is really sort of taking the lead and is the figurehead, Sometimes just having the numbers is enough to sort of get you through and, and make that push you need. Uh, because again, I found it incredibly isolating when I started out on Wall Street and I would have women who I felt would sometimes cut me down because they saw me as a threat. Well, she's the only other woman in the room and I have to prove that I'm smarter, funnier, more relatable to the men in the room. And, and that's something that I think we need to continue to work to change. Yeah, I agree with that. that. Yeah, Jacob. Well, I was just gonna say that's where that quote comes from, right? Madeleine Albright saying, hell, you know, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. Yeah. I mean, that was really much more about women helping each other, and especially older women helping younger women. It wasn't meant to be about younger women supporting Hillary. Uh, That's right, the original Alex, genocide. Alex, talk to us about that as well in the context of, you know, being on uh, national television as you are. Um, in that space, the media space, you know, one thinks of it as being extremely cutthroat, uh, that there are limited positions. Of course, you know, the ageism factor that we haven't even touched on yet, uh, that it hits women uh, in a way that it really doesn't hit men. Um, how do you then find friendships and forging friendships with people as you're going on the way up as, a, as opposed to looking at other women as, as adversaries? I love that, like, when we start, <laughs> it's really telling that when you mentioned that the, the idea of women, other women as adversaries, there's like a mm-hmm going up in the room, right? Like everyone's saying mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's, that's real, right? Um, and I have been in positions where I felt the same way. And, you know, Look, I think from the perspective, like on a really basic level, you got to hire more women. You just got to hire more. If you're a woman and you're in a position to oversee the hiring of staff, you got to look out and have women on the staff. I mean, I know that that's like, I, that seems pretty obvious, but it really matters. And like we, I mean, on my show, we had... The, um, the majority was, we had an EP that was a woman, we had segment producers were women, and, and like, to be honest, we forgot that every, I mean, we forgot that it was a female-dominated show. I mean, and that was really good. That seemed like progress. So, um, you know, I, I think that, especially if you're in a leadership position, it's really important to, um, and, and women are particularly good at this, so I don't think this is far-fetched, to cultivate an environment where voices can be heard, decisions are still made, it can still be cutthroat in the way that media is inevitably going to be cutthroat, but that that it can be collaborative, um, and to be aware of those unfortunate gender dynamics when and if they play th themselves out. I mean, I think it's look. I mean, self policing isn't a very like 
sexy answer to that question, but I think that it sort of comes down to that. So are you in favor of quotas? I think this is another conversation that happens around this. I mean, do we need to, to, to mandate these things? Do we need to have quotas that in a newsroom, it should be that X percentage uh, is female, X percentage is well, female I mean, minority? Look in a newsroom, it just seems stupid to me if we're talking about reproductive issues, and that's a huge part of the campaign, or if we're talking about wage parity or whatever we're talking... Like, it, it's important to have people from different perspectives who can use their own personal experiences to help shape stories or inform coverage. I mean, that just seems like you'd want, in the same way that like, if you're talking about foreign policy, you want people with foreign policy experience. I mean, I just, it, that, that's helpful. I don't think of it as quotas. I just think of it as building a newsroom that's relevant or, or surrounding yourself with people whose views matter as far as the issues that you're interested in or want to cover. So, I mean, I don't feel ashamed saying like, I, I think it, like diversity, whatever that means, gender, racial, whatever, that's that's great. That makes the, the news coverage better. And I have to say, yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because the Women's Media Center released a report earlier this week, which you guys should really check out, very uh, interesting reading. Uah Between 2014 and 2015, only 37% of news stories on reproductive issues, 37% were written by women. Uh, and 52% were written by men, and that erroneous 11%, there were no bylines on those ones. So, uh, But, you know, I think it's, it is fascinating, isn't it, that, you know, we, we, we want more women's voices telling women's stories, and, of course, men can have a, an opinion on these things as well. But, but you're right, and, and Jay, it kind of goes back to that question about diversity and, and getting to parity, and I think what we hear a lot is people saying, well, we, we're having a meeting about that, uh, we've got a focus group around this, and uh, we're, we're really working on it and you sort of think what the fuck are you doing just do it surely surely just do it I mean why what is the this faffing so what did you find in the course of researching the book what's that why is that the case um so you know to get sort of to address quotas as well as this I think um I Amer women were brought into the workforce uh, in World War during World War II with Rosie the Riveter, remember? And like, and it was economic necessity that brought women in. And it wasn't until 1970 that all of the laws banning married women from working were fully repealed in the United States. Um, and it really isn't going to be until economic necessity demands it again that women actually reach parity in the workforce. And that is actually a lot sooner than you would imagine. So um, for all the fluffy talk of like, we have gender programs and we believe in diversity and blah, blah, blah. Um, the next president, whomever he or she may be, will have to deal with a demographic cliff that is rapidly approaching. So by the year 2030, the baby boomer generation will have basically retired and will be short 26 million workers in the United States. There's only two ways to fill this, this shortfall. One, you bring in massive amounts of new immigration, which is incredibly hard to imagine with this Congress. Um, or two, you bring women up to full employment, which almost completely solves the gap. And women already have the training for it. They make up more than half of college degrees and more than 60% of graduate degrees. Um, so they have the ability to do it. They're just not using that ability right now. Um, and so there has to be a program. It's not going to happen naturally, right? Like there's just, let's face it, it's just not going to happen naturally. Do we have quotas? Again, this Congress, hard to imagine um, passing quotas. But 
Um, there are examples from abroad, which I think are, can be really in, in, in illustrative of what we could do. And, um, you know, to get back, Alex had said it's really important for women to hire women. Um, and I would take that to another step and I would say it's actually really important for men to hire women. Um, it's really important for everybody to hire women. <laughs> so, um, there's, you know, and whether it's Japan and Shinzo Abe or, you know, the 30% club in Canada and the UK. Um, but the best one example I found was this, um, this group in Australia with the, what I thought originally was an unfortunately named group called the Male Champions for Change. Um, but it's actually an aptly named group because the, what happened was is Australia reached this demographic cliff ahead of us and they needed to bring women into, into full employment in order for their economy to keep going. And so they basically created this public-private partnership where they challenged, the prime minister challenged all of the top companies in the country to very transparently report, you know, all of like, you know, who are you hiring, how many women you're hiring, how many women you're training, how many women you're retaining after they go and have kids and bring them back. Um, and it's something that we actually do not do in the United States. There's like voluntary reporting, which nobody really does. Um, and, and, and if you had that transparency and you had, like in Australia, the Australian media is like, um, you know, really good at shaming people. <laughs> and so... Borrowed that from us in the UK. <laughs> yeah. And so... Um, you know, when they when they when they when they released these reports and people didn't make their goals, they got shamed for it. Um, and so, what we really will need is something akin to that kind of public-private partnership, where companies are challenged very publicly to meet these goals and to be transparent about reporting them. I, Amelia, that's at least what I found. Bernadette, yeah, what do you think about that? Having seen sort of you know the private sector and then the public sector. So, I, I mean, I agree with everybody up here, right? Everybody needs to hire more women. It's interesting because now I come at everything from sort of a national security perspective, and I find it interesting that when we go overseas. We're sort of constantly wagging our fingers and lecturing countries on how they need to empower women and do more for women. And then sometimes you step back and you think, golly gee, why aren't we doing this at home? You know, we go out into this into this space and we're talking about how, you know, in Afghanistan you need to empower women and girls to learn. In Africa, we need to encourage these governments that, you know, when a girl starts menstruating, it doesn't mean her education stops, that this is a natural cycle of life and she should be educated and have an opportunity uh, to contribute not only to her society, um, but to, to, you know, to the, to the broader community. Um, I also think there needs to be sort of, it, it's important to have women's issues and focuses on that, but I think we also need to sort of start educating our populations that it isn't a sort of the, you know, us or them type of issue. You know, the, the sense that maternity or childcare is a woman's issue, um, I think is completely bogus. You know, men should be really interested and concerned about maternity or childcare or paternity leave and things like that. Um, it is a national security issue because, as Jay said, you can't discount 50% of the population and expect that you're going to have a strong economy, that you're going to continue to grow, that you're going to be competitive in the world. Um, and going back to something I said earlier, just because we're in a better space than we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, doesn't mean we're in a good space. We're making progress, um, but we can't forget that we still have a really long way to go in this country, let alone around the world um, in sort of getting a gender parity and a gender balance in terms of opportunities for women. Um, and I don't see that as a women's issue. I see it as a national security imperative, a domestic issue, something that all of us need to be concerned with. And I don't know that it's viewed that way yet. Well, uh, unfortunately, 
run out of time, but I think it's a great note to end on. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is just a, a snippet, a snapshot of all the fantastic things you can read in Jay's book, which of course is available uh, over there with wine and uh, delights and conversation. We'll keep the conversation continuing here. Uh, but I want to thank uh, the fantastic panel, Jay, Bernadette and Alex. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.